Good evening, everyone. Certainly good to be back in Kingsport, Tennessee. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 93. Our text for this evening will be the entire psalm. Again, that was Psalm 93. We'll read verses 1 through 5 as our text for this evening's message, which is titled, Yahweh Reigns. Hear now the word of God. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up. O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves, more than the sounds of many waters. Then the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Thus is the reading of God's word. A lost practice within Christian communities today is the memorization of Scripture, and more particularly, the memorization of the Psalms. In times past, it was common to read Psalms and to sing Psalms during the worship service. And although we read and sing Psalms here, by and large, this is not the common practice today in the church as it used to be. Perhaps this is why many evangelicals today do not know the Psalms, or maybe this is the fruit of Christians not knowing the Psalms. Either way, it is clear when we survey the church as a whole that Christians do not know the Psalms as they once did in church history. And let's be honest. Many of us here do not know the Psalter very well, for how many of us can recite some of the Psalms? This is more than unfortunate. For whether you be in the throes of life and be grieving a wayward child, a lost loved one, a recent diagnosis, the loss of a job, the grie grieving the fact that you committed your besetting sin yet again, you will find comfort in the Psalms. And moreover, if you are experiencing abundant blessings in life, if, whether it be a loved one has been born again, if your church is growing rapidly and is unified in the faith, if you got that job you always wanted, or if God has blessed you with another covenant child, let the Psalms be fuel on the fire of your praise to God. Charles Spurgeon once said, speaking of the Psalter, quote, it is the paradise of devotion, the holy land of poetry, the heart of scripture, the map of experience, and the tongue of saints, end quote. Let this suffice as a call for all of us to return in making the Psalter part of our daily devotions to the Lord. Many of us today come to the Psalter viewing it as a 150 disconnected hymns and poems. However, there is a structure and a movement within the whole of the Psalms. The Psalms were written across a large span of time with Psalms from Moses, David, and the exilic period 
of Israel. The Psalms were then placed in the order we have today and for specific reasons. Psalms 1 and 2 were not written first, but were placed first in the Psalter as a type of introduction. Psalm 1 is a personal address contrasting the righteous with the wicked, while Psalm 2 is of cosmic address, asking why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? These two psalms really set the tone and the tenor for the whole of the Psalter. They give us a framework of which we can read on to the whole. These two psalms are like two pillars <coughs> that hold the top of the doorframe up as you enter into the Psalter. And furthermore, the Psalter is divided up into five books, with the end of each book being marked with a doxology. The first book, which is from Psalms 1 to Psalm 41, begins with the inauguration of the Davidic covenant and ends with the promises of Psalm 2 in part being realized. Book 2, which is Psalms 42 through 72, ends with the kingship being give to David, given to David's son Solomon. And book 3, which is Psalms 73 through 89, ends on a rather gloomy note. The psalmist recalls the promises made to David that his throne would endure forever, saying in Psalm 89, verse 37, it shall be established forever like the moon and the witnesses in the sky is faithful. Yet, in verse 38 and following, the psalmist writes, but you have cast off and rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown in the dust. You have broken down all his walls. You have broke, brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass along the way plunder him. He has become a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You also turned back the edge of his sword and have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have shortened the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord? Although the psalmist questions God's faithfulness to his promise to David, he still ends the psalm with praising God. And I lay this before you because the end of book three in the Psalter is right before our text for this evening. And many commentators view book four as answering the burning questions within the psalmist's heart of this book, of the last book. Moreover, book four of the Psalter contains what is called the enthronement psalms, which is Psalms 93 through 99 which look to Yahweh as reigning supreme over all of creation. These enthronement psalms sees Yahweh as king of the created order. And a brief outline of our psalm for this evening, Psalm 93, is as follows. Verses 1 and 2 are of Yahweh's sovereign reign. Verses 3 and 4 speak of the enmity the world has towards God. And verse 5 tells us, two important characteristics of the kingdom of God. So with this being said, let's look back now at the first verse of our psalm for this evening, Psalm 93, verse 1, which reads, The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. 
it will not be moved. Oftentimes, with the Psalms, the main point is found in the middle of the psalm. However, here in this psalm, the main point is the very first phrase, Yahweh reigns. And for anyone who may not be aware, this word LORD here, which is printed in all caps, is done so to signify that it is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Moreover, although the world rejects this fact in seeking to place themselves as sovereigns, the Lord reigns is a foundational truth to all of reality. The world kicks against this doctrine and always trying to set themselves above all things just as at the Tower of Babel when they tried to build a tower reaching into heaven so that they may make a name for themselves and direct disobedience to God. Furthermore, the doctrine of God's sovereignty is always under attack, and our period in time is no exception. Men have always proclaimed themselves to be the captain of their own ships. Men throughout the ages have always sought to consolidate power to themselves so that they may be in control not only of themselves, but also of nations. No matter how hard men work to put themselves as captains as of their own ships and of, of their own lives and of others' lives, the word of God will always stand. The Lord reigns. Notice there is no qualifiers or restrictors put on this phrase. The Lord reigns. It is not as some would have us believe that, yes, the Lord reigns, but certainly not over our autonomous free wills. They will gladly concur with this statement, the Lord reigns until meat is put on the bones. They will give hearty amens when this is pronounced, but as soon as you start to explain what the psalmist wants us to believe and embrace, the cries and the wails begin. However, notice that with two words, the psalmist tears down a multitude of vain philosophies that have been built to protect the sacred cow of human autonomy. Yahweh reigns. <clears throat> God has not been dealt a hand of cards and just has to do the best he can with what he has, but rather Yahweh reigns. To say that God is sovereign is simply to say that God is God. A.W. Pink once said, quote, The sovereignty of the God of Scripture is absolute irresistible, infinite. To put it now in its strongest form, we insist that God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases, that whatever takes place in time is but the outworking of that which he decreed in eternity, end quote. Consider also Paul's words to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 11. Paul said, he, that is God, works all things after the counsel of his will. Now let me ask you, is it really all things? Even over suicides, homicide, infanticide, mental illnesses, the loss of jobs, natural disasters, your unbelieving children, the death of your unborn child, your inability to have children, God has spoken through his word and has given a resounding yes. He is in control of the most minute and mundane detail in your life and everything else across the world. Yahweh reigns. He works all things after the counsel of his will. Not my will, not your will. Not the president's will or any other world leader's will. It is not chance nor fate that reigns. 
not circumstances nor luck that reigns, but rather, as the psalmist tells us, the Lord reigns. Notice also the psalmist writes this in the present tense. It is not that the Lord reigned in the past and has ceased to do so now, nor is it that at some undisclosed, undisclosed point in the future God will begin to reign. Rather, Yahweh reigns now, as he has in the past and as he will in the future. Now listen to this very important point. Jesus is not arm-wrestling Satan in hopes of winning so that he can be in control. So if that image is in your mind, please put it out. Another implication which comes out of this psalm is that God has not started plan A only to realize that Eve would actually eat the forbidden fruit and then started plan B. God has decreed all things to come to pass and it is transpiring exactly how he wants it to. And no, this does not mean that God is the author of sin, but he is the creator of a plan that includes sin. God knew Adam and Eve would sin and allowed them to sin for the fulfillment of his decreed will. And the Lord's divine providence, he works through primary and secondary causes. This means that he is pleased to work through his creation, which includes the sinful actions of men to bring about his decreed will, just as he did with Pharaoh in Egypt and Pontius Pilate with the crucifixion of Christ. Although God in his ordinary providence uses secondary means, he is still free to work without, above, and against them all, all at his pleasure. Furthermore, the sovereign reign of God does not mean that man is not responsible for his sin. Just as Adam's eating of the forbidden fruit was sin, and was not left without guilt and punishment of sinning against God. Likewise, we will be held accountable for our actions, and God is able to hold us accountable because he is sovereign. Notice also here that the psalmist says, Yahweh is clothed with majesty. So we see here, the Lord reigns while being clothed in majesty. He has a rank that is higher than any other. He is completely superior Notice also, Yahweh is clothed and girded with strength. His reign does not rely on the mere compliance of people. He is not a weak God. Think of how God delivered his people, Israel, out of the hands of Egypt and ancient hands of Pharaoh in Egypt, which was the world's superpower at its time. Consider also the account with King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, which was at its time the world's greatest superpower. God drove him away to live like a beast in the field to eat grass until Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and gave honor and glory to the Lord. These are merely two examples to demonstrate the power and strength of Yahweh. Furthermore, the psalmist says that the world is firmly established and that it will not be moved. What could be more obvious to us when we survey the world around us? We are on a planet that spins on an axis at 1,000 miles an hour. The gravity rate is a constant 9.8 meters a second squared. And if either of these stopped for even a minute, the whole world would be thrown into utter chaos. If Earth was to drift closer to the sun, it would be too hot, melting the glaciers and flooding most of the land. And conversely, if Earth moved farther from the sun, the climate would become so cold that everything would freeze. 
And yet we do not experience any of this because God has firmly established the world and it will not move. The Lord's reign is so great, so without boundaries, that even the planets and the stars are subject to his commands. There are no borders where the Lord's sovereign rule does not reach. Look back now at verse 2 with me. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Here the psalmist tells us that God's throne is established from of old. That is to say, his kingship, his sovereign rule, has been established from all eternity. He then bookends this first section of the psalm by saying, The Lord is from everlasting. That is, Yahweh has no beginning. There was never a time when God was not. He has always existed. Moses wrote in Psalm 90, verse 2, saying, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Jeremiah wrote in chapter 10, his diatribe against false gods, saying in verse 10, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. We can multiply example upon example of the attribute of eternality being ascribed to God. Abraham in Genesis 21:33 said, He is the eternal God. In Isaiah 40, verse 28, it says, The Lord is the everlasting God. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.17, Now to the king eternal. And on we can go. But what is the point the psalmist wants to make here? The psalmist's central theme and thrust is to exalt the Lord as the sovereign ruler over all things. Therefore, it follows that his referencing the eternality of God is showing us that the Lord reigns eternally. There was not a point in time when God was not king of all and over all. And there will never be a time when his absolute sovereign rule will end. Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations 5.19 saying, You, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. So we see that Yahweh's kingly reign, which is not limited by borders, boundaries, time, nor space, has always been and always will be. Yahweh is in control. And as John Calvin put it, the whole world is a theater to display the divine glory of God. The Lord is not a passive spectator, but rather is actively governing and working all things after the counsel of his perfect, immutable, unchangeable will. And beloved, this is why we can have confidence in our God. That when we are in the throes of life, in the pits of despair, we can hold tightly to the promise our Lord has made us in Romans 8.28, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. We may not like what we are going through. We are promised that it is for our good and for his glory. Praise the Lord.
Beloved, let this promise echo and reverberate in your minds. Because hardships will come. Just as we've been chosen to believe in Christ, so also many have been chosen to suffer for his sake. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Whatever trials you may be experiencing, if you are in Christ, it is not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to all those who have faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. The Lord reigns from and through all eternity in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want. The Lord reigns. Look back now at the next stanza in the psalm, verses 3 and 4. The floods have lifted up. O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. More than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. The imagery used in this stanza of the psalm has given rise to three prominent interpretations. There are some who argue that this imagery is used to reference God's triumph over the false gods of Babylon. In this view, they, they will draw parallels between what this psalm has and ancient Babylonian, Babylonian poetry that depicts the false god Marduk struggling for power against the other false goddess of the sea. Proponents of, the, proponents of this view see this stanza as showing that, God, that the God of Israel is true, is the true God, and has thus triumphed over these false gods of Babylon. The problem with this view, however, is that none of this is found in the text. And moreover, seeing that this interpretation has no foundation within the immediate text or any other biblical text, it ought to be rejected as a false interpretation of what the psalmist wrote. Furthermore, a more plausible view is that this speaks of God's sovereignty over the created order, pointing to the sea as the most untamable aspects of nature. This view may cause you to think of Jesus calming the sea when Jesus and his disciples set out for the other side in Matthew chapter 8. For Jesus was sleeping while they were making their way to the other side when a great storm came upon them and waves were crashing onto them and Jesus slept soundly. And the disciples being utterly terrified woke Jesus crying for him to save them because of this violent storm. And Jesus then rebuked the winds and the sea and the sea obeying him became perfectly calm, thus showing the sea to be subject to the rule of Christ. This is certainly a plausible view of this imagery that the psalmist uses. However, the third view is the one which I think best fits with what the psalmist wrote. Although I do believe that God is sovereign over all creation, including the seas, I believe the psalmist has much more in mind here. For Hebrew poetry often uses imagery to convey its meaning. And throughout the Bible, this same imagery is used where seas and its pounding waves are likened to godless nations that plot vainly against God's rule. Think of Isaiah 17, verse 12, which says, Alas, 
the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. The nations rumble on like the rumbling of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away. And think also of that short epistle Jude in verse 13. The godless are likened to wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. And also in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 23, speaking of the pagan nation, Babylon says, They seize bow and spear, they are cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea. Also, something we must remember. The Psalms were put in a specific order. And as we looked at earlier, book 3 of the Psalms ends without a Davidic king on the throne. And the psalmist mourns this. The psalmist says in Psalm 89, the crown of David has been profaned in the dust. There was no king from the line of David for the crown to rest on. This was a devastating time for Jerusalem, who had been plundered by this Gentile pagan nation, Babylon, who has already been likened to the roaring sea by the prophet Jeremiah. And here we are, Four psalms later in the Psalter, and the psalmist reminds God's people that the Lord reigns, that he is clothed in majesty, that he is girded in strength, that he has firmly established the world so that it will not be moved, that his throne is from of old, sovereignly ruling from all eternity. Then the psalmist moves to this imagery of floods lifting up their voice with pounding waves. The psalmist, like all good poets, paints a mental picture for us of the sinful rebellion against God. We are told the floods have lifted up. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. The psalmist gives us this threefold repetition emphasizing what is being said here. The floods have lifted up. Notice this is the past tense. The floods have lifted up their voice. Notice again, this is past tense. And then the third line, the floods lift up their pounding waves. Notice this line is in the present tense. So we see in this imagery that the God-hating nations has risen up against God, standing contrary to him and his ways. And then they lift up their voice against God, decrying his reign as king over all. And thirdly, they presently fight against God and his kingdom with violence, like the pounding of the waves against the rocks. The godless since the fall in the Garden of Eden have not ceased to stand against, speak against, and violently fight against God and his kingdom. From Egypt to Assyria to Babylon to the sections of modern Africa and to Asia, the unbelievers use what might they may have to violently torture, kill, and persecute those whom the Lord has predestined unto salvation. And the psalmist goes on to tell us that more than the sounds of many water, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. No matter how loud the sounds of the nations may be in their blasphemy, no matter how much earthly might they may possess, the Lord on high is infinitely greater and mightier. The strength of Egypt, the strength of Assyria, the strength of Babylon, the strength of America, the strength of China, the strength of the Roman Empire. Take all of these and any other great nation, combine their strength together, and it isn't even a drop in the bucket 
compared to the might and strength of Yahweh. Take all the pomp and power of this world, compare it to God Almighty, and it is as if it is nothing. It is like comparing a glass of water to the Atlantic Ocean. There is no comparison. Consider what is written in Psalm 2, which says, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. What is the divine response? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. The Lord does not tremble when nations rise up and plot against him. He sits comfortably on his throne and laughs. The nations rage against the kingly rule of God. They reject the ways of the Lord. They do not want to be subject to him. They want to be a law unto themselves. They believe they have a better way of doing things. And the Lord laughs and scoffs at them and will speak to them in his anger and terrify them. The Lord is in a sense saying, you puny creatures are going to take on me? The creator of all that is? The king of the cosmos? I can obliterate you just the same as I created you. Beloved, it is the pinnacle of foolishness to reject God and stand against him. Please do not do so. Yet, the floods will lift up their voice. The floods will lift up in their pounding waves. But more than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Let's look at our final verse for this evening. Verse 5 reads, Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. As we come to the last stanza of this psalm, we might expect to find encouragement to rest in the sovereign reign of the Lord, or perhaps a word of praise to God. However, instead, we find the psalmist telling us two important truths. This first phrase here, your testimonies are fully confirmed, speaks directly to the trustworthiness of the word of God. Some commentators seek to reduce the testimonies spoken of here to the law of God, while others assert it speaks of the promises of God. However, I think based on the context of what the psalmist has said and intends to teach us, the word testimonies ought to be taken as referring to all of sacred scripture. I see no reason to reduce it to one section or another of scripture. Moreover, it is because of the Lord's sovereign, kingly reign over all that we can be certain that all the promises and the threats will be carried out just as he has spoken it in his word. Yahweh's omnipotent reign renders certain the fulfillment and truth of God's testimonies. There is no shadow of turning in the word of God. It is the very truth of which we may know God. Furthermore, we can know that all that stands and speaks in contradiction of God's word 
is nothing other than lies from the father of lies who is Satan himself. God's testimonies are fully confirmed and reliable. Moreover, it is by the testimony of God that we may read of him creating all things and all things being very good. It is by the testimony of God that we may read of the first gospel proclamation to Eve after the fall. It is by the testimony of God that we may read of him suddenly speaking to his servant Abraham. It is by the testimony of God that we may read of him delivering his chosen people out of the land of Egypt and a mighty display of power. It is by the testimony of God that we may read of his majesty and properly praise him. It is by his testimony that we may read of the second person of the Trinity entering his creation through the uterus of a young virgin, adding a second nature to himself so that he may be truly God and truly man, to live under the law and fulfill all righteousness, being blameless, completely without sin. Also that he may go and die upon a Roman cross and have the full wrath of God the Father poured out on him for the countless sins of his elect, sins that he did not commit and was not obligated to atone for, but did it so that all who would have faith in him alone for the forgiveness of sins could stand before the throne on judgment day and be clothed in an alien righteousness which is imputed to our account, a righteousness that was not earned or merited in any way, but was freely given by Jesus Christ to his sheep, so that instead of burning in hell where the worm does not die, where we would rightly go, we may go on to eternity and paradise with him to sing praises and glorify him for an eternity for his great majesty and complete holiness. Oh, how our souls ought to long for the day that we may all fall face down before the Lamb and sing as the seraphim do night and day. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Dear Christian, do not forget this is our end goal. To be with our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And worship and serve him night and day for all eternity. The psalmist tells us the Lord's testimonies are fully confirmed. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of God is true and will not fade away. And we can know this with certainty because Yahweh reigns. The psalmist then says in conclusion, Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Is it not fitting that the king of the cosmos, who is thrice holy, would have a house where only holiness is appropriate, and that it is said to be forevermore, speaking to the eternality of this fact, that holiness always has been befitting to the house of God and always will be. As we conclude this evening, my desire is for this phrase, Yahweh reigns, to echo in your mind. When your head hits the pillow, remember, Yahweh reigns. A greater understanding of God's sovereignty leads to humility of self and doxology of the Lord. This psalm, after being written, would have been sung from generation after generation of God's people. 
And we all know that when you sing something, it has a way of embedding its contents into your consciousness in a way that other things can't do. That's what this psalm is intended to do, to embed this truth into your conscience. The Lord reigns. Stephen Lawson once said that if you reject the sovereignty of God, you are no more than a practical atheist. Let me just quickly bring some verses to our attention here. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Proverbs 16.1 The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 19.21 Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. So often we will affirm this fact, the sovereignty of God. But yet in our heart of hearts, we will try and draw borders around things that are precious to us. We may think, Lord, you're over all. You're in control of all. But this part, this is sectioned off for me and my control. This is for my keeping. Oftentimes we will do this without even realizing it. Beloved, take heed. For the very thing you may be vying for control over may be the thing that the Lord takes from you to humble you and to teach you that he reigns and that he has absolute sovereignty. We must learn to hold everything that we have with an open hand before the Lord. We often take this doctrine, which should be of great comfort to us, and we despise it. But really, how terrifying would it be if God is, was not sovereign? If he was not in control and was not working all things after the counsel of his own will? The fact is, if God was not sovereign over our trials, heartaches, and joys in this life, We would have no basis to trust his promises and certainly not to believe that he is working all things for good to those who love him. If you are going through hardships in your life, whatever they may be, I want to encourage you this evening that it is for your good and his glory. Remember, Christ was tempted and persecuted much more than we will ever be, and he can sympathize with us. Therefore, Draw near to him. Let your affections be deepened for him. And conversely, if things are going great for you in life right now and you are experiencing blessing after blessing, do not neglect to praise him and thank him. For every blessing we have is from God and is freely given to us. And he can just as easily remove it all just the same as he has given it all to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you and praise you for you reign above and over all. We thank you that we can have confidence that you are a mighty king and that you do not tremble when the nations plot against you, that you are in control of all things and that you are working all things after the counsel of your will. We thank you that your testimonies are true, Lord that you have given us your word and that it is reliable 
that it is truthful, and that we can rest in your word and your promises to us. We pray that you would be with us this evening as we have heard your word and read your word. We pray that you would store it in our hearts, impress it upon our hearts, and that we would not forget that you reign. And it is in Christ's name.